0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians for our scripture reading this morning. We return to this book after a few weeks and the Christmas uh, holidays. We return to this book, this fourth letter, actually, that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. A very challenging ministry here in the book of 2 Corinthians. It is foundational in which we start in chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to 318. It is a foundational section in which he lays out the beginning of a defense of his ministry. A defense of his ministry for there had been detractors that had arisen within the church that were accusing and attacking him of various things. And here in this section of text from chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, will be our reading in which he expresses his discouragement and his change in perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The text reads, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved And among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God... We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer together before we begin our study. O God of heaven, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit once again, O God. Illumine our minds and grant to us understanding that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. May you be honored and praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Some pastors and those in ministry become so disheartened that they leave the ministry. There was a letter that was cited in A.T. Robertson's The Glory of the Ministry that reads this way from a pastor. The letter reads, My dear Jim... I am through yesterday. I handed in my resignation to take effect at once, and this morning I began to work for the blank land company. I shall not return to the pastorate. I think I can see into your heart as you read these words and behold not a little disappointment if not disgust. I don't blame you at all. I'm somewhat disgusted with myself. Do you recall the days in the seminary when we talked of the future and painted pictures of what we were to do for the kingdom of God? We saw the boundless needs for an unselfish Christian service and longed to be out among men doing our part towards the world's redemption. I shall never forget that last talk on the night before our graduation. You were to go out to the foreign field, and I to the first church of blank. We had brave dreams of usefulness, and you have realized them. As I look back across 25 years, I can see some lives that I've helped, and some things which I have been permitted to do that are worthwhile. But sitting here tonight, I am more than half convinced that God never intended me to be a minister If he did, I am not big enough and brave enough to pay the price. Even if it leads you to write me down as a coward, I'm going to tell you why I've quit. In all these years, I have found not a few earnest, unselfish, consecrated Christians. I do not believe that I am specially morbid or unfair in my estimate. So far as I know my own heart, I am not bitter. But through all these years, a conviction has been growing within me that the average church member cares precious little about the kingdom of God and its advancement or the welfare of his fellow men. He is a Christian in order that he may save his soul from hell, but for no other reason. He does as little as he can, lives as indifferently as he dares, If he thought he could gain heaven even without lifting his finger for others, he would jump at the chance. Never have I known more than a small minority of any church which I have served to be really interested in and unselfishly devoted to God's work. It took my whole time to pull and push and urge and persuade the reluctant members of my church to undertake a little something for their fellow men. They took a covenant to be faithful in attendance upon the services of the church, and not one out of ten ever thought of attending prayer meeting. A large percentage seldom attend church in the morning and a pitifully small number in the evening. Didn't seem to matter anything to them that they had dedicated themselves to the service of Christ. I am tired. Tired of being the only one in the church from whom real sacrifice is expected. Tired of straining and tugging to get Christian people to live like Christians. Tired of planning work for my people and then being compelled to do it myself or see it left undone. Tired of dodging my creditors when I would not need to if I had what is due me. Tired of being a frightened vision of penniless... Old age, I am not leaving Christ. I love him. I shall still try to serve him. Judge me leniently, old friend. I can't bear to lose your friendship. Yours of old, William. It's unfortunate that that letter perhaps typifies many According to the Schaefer Institute, about six years ago, a sampling of 1,050 pastors, they recorded that 100% of them had a friend or a close associate who had left ministry because of burnout, of conflict in the church or from moral failure. And a whole 71%, 802 of them, stated that they were burned out, battled depression beyond fatigue on a weekly and even a daily basis. But those feelings of stress or discouragement or depression don't merely characterize those in the ministry. They characterize people. People as well. Discouragement comes. Discouragement can sometimes take over, lead to depression, can lead to problems that sometimes may be overwhelming for anyone in their life. The good news is that the godliness of godliest of people, including the Apostle Paul, faced difficulties like this and yet overcame discouraging times. We read about Paul's physical difficulties. We read about his imprisonment. We read about how he had to run for his life. We read about how he was beaten or stoned. We read about the stresses of the ministry that he faced and yet... Here in this text today, he overcame. He was able to rise above the level of his physical discouragement and persecution, in which he changes his perspective. His perspective, he turns to God. How do you handle discouraging times then? How can we handle discouragement when it comes to things in life, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to people or situations or problems? How do you handle that in a way that you can live a victorious life rather than feeling as if you're treading water every single day? Well, we look at Paul here in this passage We look at the context, first of all, of troubling circumstances that he had in verses 12 and 13. Troubling circumstances that he had. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've come to this book, so just as a review, we remember that this, as I mentioned, is the fourth letter, actually, that was written to the city of Corinth. The fourth letter. The first letter and the third letter were lost. Paul came to Corinth in A.D. 51 or so, and he spent a year and a half planting the church, and he administered there. And then he left the church to go to Ephesus, along with Aquila and Priscilla, which you've read about perhaps in the book of Acts. And there in the city of Ephesus, he meets a man named Apollos, and Apollos was a mighty man in the word of God. But he was preaching the old way the way of the Old Testament and they say they trained him, they taught him about Christ and why Christ came. And then they sent Apollos back to Corinth to be the pastor there. And he ministered there. On a subsequent missionary journey, Paul comes out to Ephesus. And he had written the first letter to Corinth and in Ephesus he spent three and a half years there. Establishing Ephesus as a, a center for evangelization. But due to that first letter, this young church at Corinth had a number of questions, and they faced a number of problems. And in the past couple of years, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so they they sent a group of people to talk with Paul, to talk with Paul about the problems that they faced. To talk with Paul about the divisions in the church. To talk with about Paul with, about the showboating that some people had problems with and showing off their gifts. About the immorality, about the lawsuits, about the division, about the philosophy. And Paul sent back a second letter. He sent back a second letter, which we have as the book of 1 Corinthians, correcting and answering all of those questions. But did the church respond? No. So Paul went directly from Ephesus to confront them and to help them and to have them walk with God. And when he did, he was lambasted by an individual there and the church didn't stand behind Paul. And so he went away and he wrote a third letter, a severe letter, which is referred to in the book of 2 Corinthians. He wrote a severe letter, a letter that was disciplinary, a letter that was of correction to them. And he wondered how they would respond to this very severe disciplinary letter. To this church that had not stood in the way of God and had not followed his instruction. And he was going to visit the church. He was going to visit the church on his way to Macedonia and come back again. So he would bless them twice. But he changed his mind as we saw in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 there. And they accused him, saying, look, this guy, he says he's going to come, but he doesn't come. He's fickle. He really doesn't care about you. He really doesn't love you. Look at what he's doing. And Paul says, I didn't want to come because I didn't want to come down. I wanted to give you a chance to repent. So he goes to Troas and then to Macedonia. And that is where we pick up the story and the account here. He goes to Troas here and he says in verse 12, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit. When he says the, the door was opened, it's a reference to opportunities for ministry. He says that same phrase in the book of 1 Corinthians when he says that a door, a wide door for effective service has opened to me in 1 Corinthians sixteen, eight, and 9. There in Ephesus. Or in Acts fourteen, twenty-seven, When they had arrived there and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul went to Troas. And a door of opportunity to preach the gospel was open to him there for ministry. And yet the scriptures say he had no rest. He had no rest in his spirit. He was hoping to see Titus there. What was on his mind? What was on his mind was how did they respond to that very severe disciplinary letter? How would they have responded? Would they turn from their way? would they bring what more rebellion against him would they follow the false teachers that had arisen within the church that were accusing Paul there he was racked with concern he was what he was very very concerned later on we even see in second corinthians 7 for even when we came into macedonia our flesh had no rest For we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Fears within. He was depressed. He was discouraged. There was no email, no text messaging, no cell phones for him to know. You basically went to the city and you found out, is Titus there? And he wasn't there. And so he moved on to Macedonia. The fact is, there will be discouraging times when there is no news or when there is bad news. And in ministry, I'm sure many of you who have served have faced discouraging circumstances or discouraging times. I can remember facing discouraging times when I first, early on, started serving as as a teacher. I remember I was a teenager. You know, I was a teenager and I was paired up in Seattle area, the church that I grew up in. You know, I was, I don't know, maybe a senior in high school or something like that. And I was given the opportunity to come alongside of Adam who was going to be teaching the 5th and 6th graders. So we had this class of maybe 10 or 12, you know, 5th and 6th graders and the CE coordinator, a very godly elderly woman. She came in, she did a wonderful job of introducing us and we wanted to be nice guys. We had no... Clue about what it meant for classroom control. And these kids, they weren't well disciplined like, you know, some of the kids here. And so it was probably maybe the second or third week we came downstairs. The classroom was downstairs. All the kids had made it to the class before us. And so we came down to the class and they had locked us out. They locked the door and they were like having a party and they were screaming and making all sorts of noise. And we would knock on the door. Let us in. Come on, everybody. This is not funny anymore, you know. And finally, one of the kids, they let us in. And then what happened? They stood on their chair and they would yell and they would scream. And we're Man, the class just went, I I mean, the lesson went out the window. It was more like, sit down, get down, be quiet, come on. And when, you know, Adam and I, we didn't know. That was very discouraging. So we thought, well, maybe uh, older kids might work. So we began to work with high schoolers, you know. And then we began a small group, discipleship group among high school boys. And I'll tell you, that was a challenge because a couple of the boys, they, they really didn't like each other. And there was some argument one time. And then a fight broke out. And we had to break these kids up. And, you know, I'm sure their parents didn't send them to Bible study to get a black and purple halo around their eyes for anything. Praise God, they came back. But it was very discouraging. What do you do when you don't know what happens? And in ministry, even here, there's discouraging times that occurred. But to Paul, his main concern wasn't how well things would be for him it was whether or not the church would be right with god he could only hope that they had turned back and he says in second corinthians chapter 11 if you turn a number of pages over in your bibles second corinthians 11:27 to 29 his concern for the church he says in verse 27 Chapter 11 I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? In other words, for those in ministry, there is, no escaping, there is no escaping the daily pressure, the daily concern for the church. Because it's extremely difficult. And if you're a parent, you know what it's like. It's extremely difficult to watch sin come in. To watch sin, whether it is a family or an individual or a church, to see sin invariably eat away like rot. To a person's life. When people do not follow God. It is a concern. A serious concern. Of what will happen to their walk with God. His concern was for the spiritual condition. The spiritual welfare of others. Now everyone has concerns. Everyone has problems. Everyone faces discouraging times. Whether it is. For you and your family, or you and your employment, or you and your children, or you and your school and your grades. Everyone will face discouraging times. How is it that you can rise above your circumstances, though? How can you overcome discouragement? You know, it's important to note that some people, they somehow like to grovel in that discouragement all of the time. They like to tread water in their problems. Maybe they've gotten so used to it all of their life, they've never really had a life that rises above, that has victory. Having problems often becomes so self-focused because what is consuming my mind is me. And my problem, but the long term solution is not garnering more attention. It is a change in our perspective. That is what Paul outlines for us here a change in how we look at life. Max Lucado, in his book Facing Your Giants, writes about the power of perspective. And he writes I discovered the importance of healthy counsel in a half-Ironman triathlon. After the 1.2-mile swim and the 56-mile bike ride, I didn't have much energy left for the 13.1-mile run. Neither did the fellow jogger next to me. I asked him how he was doing and soon regretted posing the question. Quote, this stinks. This race is the dumbest decision I've ever made. Unquote. He had more complaints than a taxpayer at the IRS. My response to him? Goodbye. (laughs) I knew if I listened too long, I'd start agreeing with him. I caught up with a 66-year-old grandmother. Her tone was quite the opposite. You'll finish this, she said. It's hot, but at least it's not raining. One step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. Stay in there, unquote. I ran next to her until my heart lifted and my legs were aching. I finally had to slow down. She waved and passed me. (laughs) Which of these two are you more like? The Apostle Paul outlines for us the power of perspective in verse 14. Turning our perspective towards God. He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God, he turns his attention to God in thanksgiving and gratitude fills his heart. He is grateful. He is humble. He is grateful for all that God has done. P.T. O'Brien, Peter O'Brien is a scholar of the New Testament and he makes note that this particular phrase of Paul, but thanks be to God, is common in his writing. It sets apart two particular purposes that Paul, when he writes this little phrase, does two things. One is to set the tone. Number two, he establishes the theme. The tone is one of humble the theme of thanksgiving. And he says here, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What does this paint? This particular section here, it paints as Paul writes, they would have known what this meant. It paints the picture of a Roman triumphal procession. The Roman triumphal procession was a lavish parade. It was a lavish parade given to those who celebrated great victories and significant military campaigns. Everybody in Rome knew about the triumphal procession, these parades, because they were on the frescoes, they were on the arches, they were on the coins, the statues, the medallions, the paintings, the cameos. And 350 triumphs are recorded in ancient life literature, these ostentatious celebrations, these massive parades were filled with soldiers and the spoils of war. William Barclay outlines what they were like. He writes, quote, in Paul's mind is a picture of a Roman triumph and of Christ as a universal conqueror. The highest honor which could be given to a victorious Roman general was a triumph Here were the conditions. That person had to be the actual commander-in-chief. That campaign had to be completely finished and the region pacified and the troops brought home. Five thousand of the enemy had to have fallen in one engagement. The territory of Rome had to be expanded. It wasn't merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled. And the victor must have had victory over a foreign foe, not a civil war. And so in this big triumph, and you probably have maybe seen something like it in the movies, in which there would be a triumphal procession. There came the state officials and the Senate first. And then there would be the trumpeters who would blow their trumpets as they paraded in the streets, followed by the spoils of war like when Titus conquered Jerusalem, they brought back the seven-branched candlesticks, the golden table of the showbread, and the golden trumpets. They were carried through the streets of Rome when Jerusalem was conquered. And then after that came big pictures of the conquered land, and then a white bull for the sacrifice. And after that would be the captives. The generals, the leaders, the princes who were in chains. And then came the lictors bearing their rods and the musicians with the lyres playing music. And the priests after that who would be burning incense. And then the general himself, the victorious general himself would ride and he stood in a chariot drawn by four horses clad in a purple tunic. Embroidered with golden palm leaves, and over it was a purple toga marked out with golden stars. And in his hand, he held an ivory scepter with a Roman golden eagle at the top. And over his head, a slave held the crown of Jupiter. After him came his family, and then finally, the army wearing their decorations and shouting, I owe triumph! Which was the cry of triumph. And this parade would go through the streets and all through the streets, all decorated and garlanded, the crowd would cheer and it was a tremendous day, tremendous day, celebrating the glory of the general and of Rome. That is the picture William Barclay writes, as he sees Christ marching in triumph, a triumph which was completely victorious. And it is Christ who leads us in that triumphal procession. In that triumphal procession, you see. And it says it manifests through us. God manifests through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. You see what would happen in this Roman triumphal procession as the trumpets would blow and the people would cheer and they would throw out these petals of flowers and the garlands would go out and the incense would burn the aroma to those who were victorious, was the aroma of victory. A sweet aroma. An aroma that was that of triumph. But to those who were bound, the aroma was of death to death. Because after they had reached the end, many would be immediately killed as a sacrifice to the Roman gods. Others would be sold into slavery. To one, it would be an aroma of life, of triumph, of victory. To the other, it would be the smell of death as they were paraded in shame. And notice it says, the text says, it is God who manifests through us. It's not us, it's not our own glory. It is God who manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. It's about God. It's about the glory of God. It's about God who is made known. We're simply a tool. And what a joy that is when we can be a tool of God to the satisfaction of God. The aroma of a sacrifice that pleases God to those Who serve in the Lord's army. But to those who are captives, they would be killed. And in life, that's how the aroma of a Christian's testimony is, isn't it? In our own experience, when you're at work or you're at school or you're facing a teacher or a neighbor... You talk about your faith. You share your faith. You bring up things. You know, if you meet a Christian that you didn't know was previously a Christian, they're glad to meet you. You're glad to find another Christian at work. You're happy to meet somebody by which you have a kindred spirit, by which you have a brotherhood or a sisterhood, and you share in that fellowship because you know you will know them for all of eternity, won't you? And that pleases You both. But when you share Christ or you live a Christ-like life among those who aren't Christians, there's conviction many times. You don't even have to say something sometimes. There's scorn. There's rejection. There's disdain. Sometimes overt aggression. I remember one of my first jobs. It was... Adam helped me get this job. And I guess I've done a lot of things with him. And we were working in a warehouse. We were working in this warehouse together and... We were, you know, driving forklifts and it was a warehouse that cut rubber and we we would work up there and many times they would listen to this radio station that just was not too, you know, wholesome. And there were the guys down there and they were all, you know, kind of the rough, rough type. And one day we didn't really care for that. We thought we'd get in there a little early and change the radio station to some Christian radio station before anybody got there. Soon afterwards, they got there, and after a few minutes, boy, the foul language was begin, you know, begin to spurt out because they were offended by the things of God. Don't be surprised if people do not like the things of God. John 15:19 tells us, "I chose you out of the world." That's what Jesus says. "Because of this, the world hates you." The world hates you. Don't expect that everyone is going to like you for being a Christian. Don't expect that if they don't like you, something is necessarily wrong with you. Expect the world to not like you, your testimony, the things you believe in, the scriptures. But the joy and the satisfaction in all of that is that we can be instruments in the hand of God to the service of God and the glory of God. And we spread that fragrance by our presence. That is why there's a difference between Paul and others. As he continues on in the text, he says, and who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? And the answer is no one. You're not adequate. I'm not adequate for these things. And note that it points out an important point that there is always, even in the sense of Paul, always a sense of inadequacy. J. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, very well-known and famous, wrote, Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of failure and sin oppressed me. You ever think about that? Somebody like him who... Founded a missions agency and every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of failure and sin oppressed me. The sense of inadequacy, even for the Apostle Paul. Who am I that I should do this? And the answer is no one. But secondly, it provides no excuse. For sometimes people will say, well, I can't do that. Or who am I to say that? Who am I to tell them? Who am I to share my faith? Who am I to teach? They won't listen to me. That's beyond my ability. You're right. Who are you? Who am I? No one. In our own ability, we often think to ourselves, Who am I? What credentials have I achieved? What, what abilities do I have? What sort of money do I have? What sort of platform or fame do I have? You think of yourself in that way. The answer is, we are. We are in and of ourselves, no one. But by the grace of God and because of God, we have the privilege of being instruments of God. That it is God who uses people, ordinary people, to accomplish His purposes. People who would, in otherwise, in the world's eyes, would be nothing to do great things for Him. God can use you. God can use you to do great things for Him. Who is adequate for all of these things? Then He goes on about His motive. What is His motive? We are not like many, says verse 17, not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He says, it's not like others who peddle the word of God. He repeats the same sentiment in First Thessalonians 2.4. He says, our exhortation doesn't come from error, doesn't come from impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. We've been approved by God as well, to be entrusted with the gospel. So, what do we do? We are to speak. Not pleasing men. Doesn't matter how they're going to respond. Doesn't matter whether they like it or not. Oh, I don't want to share with them because you know what? They're not gonna they're not they're not gonna care. We 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 want them to be happy. We don't want anybody to be offended. We offend them. We bring up Jesus. We'll offend them. Look, that is the nature of the gospel. Not as pleasing men, but does it please God to share? Yes, it does. Does it please God to minister, to step out in faith, to do things that you would not normally otherwise do? Because God is behind you and the answer is yes. There are many people who serve the Lord for many different reasons. As Paul points out, he's not there to peddle. Other people may serve the Lord out of attention or the desire for fame or the desire to feel significant. Or some serve out of habit. Some serve out of guilt. Some do it as the focus is on themselves or that it makes them feel good. Some do it out of money because they have to make a living But it is neither self-fulfillment nor the response of others that Paul ministers. Neither self-fulfillment, which is what I get. The response of others. We both like both things. They're not bad in themselves, but they're not the motivation. What is our motivation when we serve? Would we continue to serve in whatever area it might be if we were rejected? people said, I don't like that, or if people said, you're no good at that, or whatever it might be, would we continue to serve if we were assaulted or accused or often sick or don't have creature comforts or whatever it may be? What would it be? What would it be? All of those things happened to Paul. All of those things happened to his friends. All of those things and the persecution The true motive of Paul and his co-workers was genuine sincerity, was genuine sincerity. Serving from God before God for the glory of God and their heart and their motives were true. Therein lies the godly perspective and motive of serving Christ. And therein lies the key to overcoming discouragement See, when difficulties and discouragement happen, our focus is so easily fixed on the problem. Our focus is so easily fixed on the situation. The circumstance is fixed on what? Blaming others. We think to ourselves, what can I do to fix? What can I do to fix this? What can I do to fix this? And mountains become insurmountable. And doors become barriers our problems, you see, then snowball. They cause us distress. They cause us anxiety, depression, and anger. Discouragement faces everyone. What does the world say? Work harder. The world says do more. The world says eat these foods. The world says make yourself happy and do what you want to do. Drink more coffee. Practice yoga. Take these drugs. Whatever it may be to handle your discouragement... There's a temporary fix. The Scriptures tell us that the long-term solution is not simply to work on the external circumstances, hoping that they'll change. But as Paul says here, change our perspective. Fix our eyes on God. And suddenly, what? Goliath becomes nothing when you just have one stone. The walls of Jericho are like building blocks when the trumpets of Israel are blown What do we do? There's nothing you see that God cannot accomplish if we turn our eyes, we turn our faith, we turn our attention and our trust to God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers in England, said, Remember, you are only accountable for your labor and not for your success. So still toil on. How can we rise above our circumstances, our problems, our discouragement, our depression? Turn your eyes from the circumstances and the problems and fix them on God. Because if you don't walk with God and your eyes are not on God, the problems snowball and we try to fix them some other way. Through some other way that the world has their solution. Be grateful, as Paul says here, but thanks be to God. Who leads us in triumph. Do we see things from the perspective of God? Or do we see things from the perspective of what can I control? God desires that we fix our eyes on Him. The author and the finish of our faith. Who gives to us the power by His grace to overcome our discouragements. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are grateful for Your grace. We pray, O God, that you would continue to help us by your grace. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. Father, we ask that you would look into the hearts that are here. You know each and every person that is here. Their heart is bare before you. You see the discouragements, the problems, the difficulties, the trials. Perhaps there are stresses in the workplace or in the family or with their children. I pray, O God, that you, Father, would lift their eyes to look to you. May you surround their heart with peace. May they focus, O God, on the victory they have in you. For your glory and your name's sake we pray. Amen.